important that the whole world hear this talk, so that's why I needed to record it. Uh, go ahead. Okay. Uh, this kind of reminds me of the first day of, of class when I uh, would confront uh, 200 freshmen who were taking their first college class and weren't entirely sure where their socks and underwear were. Um, <laughs> Uh, this is this is pretty different, uh, and and what it really amounts to is you don't know me and I don't know you, and so I've had to arrange a talk really based not on uh, a particularly accurate or firm notion of of what you might need from a historian uh, of philanthropy. Uh, so now what I'm going to try and do is is go through uh, uh, a talk here, and and I'll hopefully at the end you can ask me any questions that. Uh, that come up and we can have some sort of discussion. Uh, historians really like to start at the beginning, so I will start at the beginning. Uh, what's really important is to realize that in human history, for most of human history, there has been no excesses or no surplus. So philanthropy was in fact a, a null hypothesis. There was nothing to give away. There were, you know, uh, there, were, there were just simply not the material circumstances uh, for philanthropy or for the uh, uh, moving around of resources. Uh, and certainly uh, this began to change with what now anthropologists and so on call the agricultural revolution, which is probably the most important thing that ever happened in human life. Uh, and we began to uh, uh, begin to differentiate people and in fact there began to become surpluses uh, and surpluses began to produce trade and uh, and, and so on uh, people saying well uh, what's that got to do with me uh, well what it's got to do with you is that we've discovered in recent years that we are genetically 90% those those people uh, from that from that period without excesses and without surpluses uh, that we're still doing that. And of course, one of the reasons that we escaped that period uh, has been a genetic predisposition to altruism. Uh, there's the notion of an altruistic gene, uh, that there are people uh, genetically predisposed to sacrifice for other people, uh, uh, which is really a profound sort of notion uh, this is not going to help you get funding. <laughs> uh, I, uh, though it may uh, cheer you up a bit to think that the person you're trying to get funding from is genetically pre predisposed to give it to you. Uh, but the fact of the matter is uh, that what really shapes your world was the rise of capitalism. Uh, and there's simply no doubt about that. The, the one thing that you do need to know is that right now in academic and intellectual circles generally, the most fundamental debate going on is about capitalism. There's just, there's just simply no way around that. Uh, that book after book after book has appeared uh, attempting to deal with one problem or another or generally about capitalism. Uh, I suggest Robert Gordon's book on uh, American growth is a very good book. Uh, for those of you who are really, uh, if you don't have anything else to do, uh, uh, you could read Piketty's book, uh, uh, Capital, uh, Capitalism. Uh, that'll take up the next half a year. Um, 
But in any event, you're going to be a philanthropist, you're going to work in a nonprofit in a world where capitalism, which produces what you're after, is, is being debated more vigorously perhaps than, than any time in the last, say, 100 years, okay? So the key factor here is the accumulation of capital or surpluses, and we begin to get a basic split that we all understand between the capitalist investor and the worker laborer. Uh, and certainly what happened, uh, and it is important for us to understand, is the victory of a bourgeois a capitalist class um, who are, in, in the simplest possible terms, urban, materialistic, and democratic, or roughly democratic. And there was a victory over the aristocracy who were rural, sentimental, and tended uh, to uh, autocratic institutions. Uh, that certainly one of the things that comes out of that was the victory of merit over birth. American capitalism, however, is a special case. I think one of the real problems here is this European capitalism or capitalism elsewhere. Capitalism in, in, in what we think of as North America, and particularly in the United States. One of the differences is that we have vast resources, that the natural resources uh, in, uh, were a, a basic uh, element of capitalism in the United States. And, and not to be too political, but let's face it, we got the continent on, on the cheap. Uh, uh, we didn't really pay for it. Uh, yeah, well, we're paying for it now, perhaps. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, I think the polite term is that very often much of the landmass was was uh, taken by what is called right of conquest. Um, the other thing that <coughs> that separates out, uh, <coughs> excuse me, separates out uh, American capitalism is an endemic shortage of labor uh, for much of the early history, which one of the things that uh, that led to, of course, was the institution of slavery. Uh, and there was nothing like stealing labor while you were stealing land. Uh, sort of a double sort of theft. Uh, the other thing that separates out American capitalism was it was intensely expansionistic. Uh, you've probably all heard the term manifest destiny. Uh, the idea here that uh, capitalism could thrive in a, in a place, in, in, in an environment where it was constantly getting new resources. It was constantly expanding into virgin areas. It was constantly taking in new people and so on. Um, then I think the fourth uh, unique feature of American capitalism was we never had an aristocracy. We never had an aristocracy by birth. So unlike the French, we had no aristocrats to behead. Uh, uh, we just, uh, uh, and that's an in incredibly important fact because in some sense what will happen, and we'll talk about this in a minute, was that an aristocracy did flow into that, that job, if you like, and it was an aristocracy of wealth. Uh, these are the people you're seeking funding from. Uh, uh, and then the, the fifth uh, and uh, separate 
sort of, in fact, now I'm going to talk a little bit about this at, at a little bit more length, was the Protestant work ethic, which is a term I use. Some people just don't like, they just say the work ethic, but whatever. It was certainly, uh, in the early days, uh, the Protestant work ethic. Now, what was that? And this is a little art. Well, it's a meme. I don't know if that makes any, if that's helpful to you uh, or not. Uh, you probably think a meme is grumpy cats uh, uh, or, or, thank you, ma'am. Uh, uh, any event, uh, the meme for the person who invented the term, uh, Richard Dawkins, is a bit of behavioral guidance that becomes sort of generally accepted direction of behavior. And let's face it, the Protestant work ethic might in fact be the most central meme uh, in American life. Well, what is the Protestant work ethic? Uh, very quickly, it is everybody has a calling. Number two, you should work hard at your calling and stay in your lane. They didn't use that term, but that's what they meant. Uh, number three, you should save. If you create a surplus, you should live an austere, sinless life, and you should save your money. Uh, you should not uh, use your success in any way to debauch yourselves or anybody else. Uh, and the fourth uh, uh, is probably the most important one for you, and that is, is that this wealth that you've accumulated by following your calling and working hard and being sinless is that you are the steward of that wealth for the good of your uh, culture, nation, town, however you wanted to think about that. Uh, it would be really hard to overestimate how important that was uh, in the 19th century. I mean, it was just simply the, the compelling rationale uh, for many people, uh, and it led to uh, an intense, uh, it was fuel for the rise of this special form of capitalism which evolved in the United States in the 19th century, all right? Some of you might be thinking, well, there were some major exceptions. Uh, yes, there were. Uh, uh, <laughs> women, for example, were excluded, uh, and African Americans were excluded. Uh, special definitions of those people were, were formulated, uh, if you like, just to, and I'm simplifying here, uh, cult of domesticity. Uh, the domestic realm was left off to women, uh, which uh, was a special case. And really, in a, a very interesting sense, the alternative, almost the, the alter side of the Protestant work ethic was imposed upon African Americans. Uh, that and stereotypes of, of African Americans developed uh, among among white Americans where the ability of blacks to work hard was just simply not there. Uh, a variety of the, the stereotype of the lazy, music-loving, uh, indolent uh, African-American evolved almost as a sort of mirror image of, of that. And of course, there was a minor altercation in the sixth decade uh, of the 19th century over this particular uh, issue which destroyed slavery as an institution, but certainly didn't destroy these stereotypes. Uh, so this is incredibly important. 
uh, I might just mention in passing, there was also a minor exception of, of more salience in the 19th century provided for Catholics. Uh, and again, this is, is part of making sure that uh, this, this idea of the Protestant work ethic uh, didn't apply to everyone and that there's sort of internal tensions, which is an understatement, um, uh, in, in that ethic, in that meme. Well, the one that you're really interested in, or at least you're going to be, because I'm going to talk about it, uh, is stewardship. And that is the idea that if you follow your calling and you get rich and you've lived an austere life and you've saved some money, you've developed a surplus, you've developed excess, you've become wealthy. Well, what's the roots of stewardship? Well, the roots of stewardship go way back in American life. I'll bet you most of you have heard of John Winthrop and, and the speech he gave uh, called a lay sermon, actually, on board the Arbella on the way here in 1629. And the title of that talk is The Model of Christian Charity, uh, which is probably the first document in the history of philanthropy uh, in America. Uh, most of you are familiar of the, the great phrase, the city on the hill. Fact of the matter is, is that more important, if you read through the whole thing, which is actually quite readable, uh, what he's calling for is charity. Uh, and what's really interesting is that he uses love and charity in the, as virtually the same thing, which is really uh, interesting. So, uh, and the other thing that comes out of that document is a definition of luck in our terms. And that is the idea here that as they begin to uh, make their settlement in New England, that the lucky will help the unlucky. Uh, and that luck is not luck, it's actually God's will. And then if you abstract out, distill out God's will from that notion, you, you really end up with a sort of secular version here of philanthropy, all right? And the fact of the matter is, is all the great figures of the settlement period tended to follow this general argument. Uh, I would add to Winthrop and to the, this Puritan notion, the Quaker philosophy, that uh, certainly one can uh, the simple uh, features of uh, Quaker thought, uh, the brotherhood of all men, the idea that we all have an inner light which is equal, uh, and, and then again, a, a very, very strong uh, prohibition against avarice and, and, and luxury, uh, a, a, a tendency to affirm simplicity over, over uh, a lux luxury, for example. Uh, and of course, the Quakers were notably charitable uh, and so on. And that just flowed in uh, to this general Protestant notion. Uh, but certainly there were some landmarks, Cotton Mather's uh, essays uh, to do good in 1710, maybe one of the first long term uh, and very influential. It's really interesting to see that Everybody in the 18th century seems to have read this at one point or another, the essays to do good. 
And when you read through that, you come up with a couple of other features here of what's developing as, a, as, as the definition of charity, the definition of what should be done. One, it's individualistic, that this is really something that falls upon the individual to be charitable. And number two, it's voluntary, that the government should not uh, compel charity, that each, uh, if you read through the essays to do good, you come up with this idea that this is really just simply the notion of individuals providing help for other individuals, and it's voluntary. And, sort of, sort of dramatic, it's the way to, it's a way to salvation. As you tote up your, your abilities uh, to make it into heaven, uh, charity is one of the things that helps you get there. Well, this all flows down to Ben Franklin, who is a really important person uh, in the history of philanthropy. Ben Franklin was born in 1706 and died in 1790. He's important in lots of different ways, all right? First of all, he uh, absorbs uh, these Puritan notions uh, by being born and raised in Boston. He, he absorbs these Quaker notions by being uh, moving, uh, escaping his father and his brother uh, to Philadelphia, where he absorbs the Quaker notions and becomes associated with both cities in some ways. And in terms of charity and philanthropy, in very, actually, uh, very, very uh, precise ways. Uh, he, of course, in Philadelphia, is a philanthropist of note. Um, he uh, in, helps endow the fire department. Uh, uh, he created an organization to improve the streets. Uh, he founds a school, which would eventually evolve into the University of Pennsylvania, and so on. And, and of course, again, you see this, the, again this, this keynote on the notion of, of, of it being voluntary. Uh, and the idea here that there are going to be people like Ben Franklin who were going to, in some interesting ways, replace an aristocracy. That Ben Franklin, in a way, uh, uh, becomes uh, a, uh, uh, an aristocrat, in a way, probably one of America's first aristocrats. In any event, all of this, this Christian notion, these Protestant notions, these Quaker notions, and so on, and the influence of Ben Franklin and his writings flows into the 19th century, all right? And this allows me to explain the title of the talk, finally, uh, and that is, we begin to see money assembling uh, in, and capitalism beginning to produce this excess. The Protestant ethic and the vast economic opportunities produced by expansion free land, mechanization, capitalism begins to spin faster and faster and faster. And I mean, it's really hard to see it, but I mean, it's, it's a metaphor that I really like. And it begins to go faster and faster and faster. And wealth begins to obey the laws of centrifugal force. And it begins to spew out money. It liberates money from the normal sort of material necessities of survival to the point where one could say, what the hell are we going to do with this stuff? Uh, what are we going to do with this, all right? And certainly the person who represents this is Andrew Carnegie, 
who, who wrote the most important document in the history of philanthropy uh, called Wealth in the North American Review uh, in 1889, I believe. If you read through that document, and what's really interesting, uh, and we're now getting to the fact where there's some sort of present uh, significance of this, uh, I would assume some of you have heard of the book Winner Take All by Adnan Gerahadis. Gerardius, whoever knows, I can't <laughs> I, If you haven't, you should, because in fact it's a book highly critical of philanthropy in America, and one of the places he starts is, is with Andrew Carnegie and this document Wealth, all right? Uh, and what we really, what, what this signifies among other things is the arrival of what was referred to at the time in the late 19th century as the millionaire class. I find that really interesting because now what we have is the billionaire class, okay? I mean, it's just, we've multiplied things. Now, there's sort of parts of, of the Carnegie document that are, uh, you know, sort of unfortunate and, and, and clearly wrong and obnoxious. Mostly the social Darwinist uh, rationale of wealth. And that is this idea that if you get wealthy, it is a unalloyed, unobjectionable definition of fitness, okay? Uh, and, and certainly the, there are other things in this, and that is that, that Carnegie, to ra rationalize me starting so early, gives a, one of the best definitions of stewardship, that there's no way in which you should, you know, use this money for your own luxurious lifestyle. The idea here is that you should be austere. He is a Scot, after all, born in Dumfrieline, uh, and en ends up actually going back to Scotland at the end of his life, uh, and he, he lives out this sort of stereotype of a, of, a, of a Scot. And the idea is that in your lifetime, uh, you should administer by yourself, by your own direction, this surplus wealth. So we're really getting a modern definition here of, of philanthropy in some sense. And he's also clearly against outright charity. The poor person has fallen by the wayside. You should go down there and, and peel off some money and just give it to them and say, there, you should, you know. The idea here is, and, and the best metaphor, is build ladders. The idea here is not so much that you're going to take the abjectly failed because if the, in the Darwinian uh, world of the late 19th century, uh, charity probably won't help the unfit. They're just, un they're just unfit. That would be his argument. The idea is that you should provide for the culture ways in which people uh, can, can use. Ladder's a good metaphor uh, for this. Uh, but certainly after Carnegie and after and the creation of all of this new wealth in the late 19th century, uh, philanthropy be begins to come thick and fast. It really, it really develops a sort of thing. And of course, just one way of looking at this is to think of major universities. All right, and I, I just found out from my wife, who's uh, a graduate, uh, that Yale was founded by, or was endowed by Elihu Yale, 
uh, who provided a bit of money and eight truckloads of goods of various sorts. It came at a fortuitous time, and so they decided to call the place Yale. Uh, Harvard is named after a person who helped endow the university. Uh, the University of Chicago was endowed, uh, endowed by John D. Rockefeller. Uh, Stanford was endowed by Leland Stanford. Uh, the Pratt Free Library in Baltimore, a really wonderful, wonderful place, was endowed by Enoch Pratt. And we could go on and on and on. But you can see the centrality here of, of, of providing universities as a way of providing a ladder uh, to people. All right. It was also at this same time that we began to get what was called in one of the histories I read, the birth of helpers. And that was, since these people were so rich and so busy, uh, and they had so much money to give away, they had to uh, uh, give this uh, task over to others. Uh, and as far as I can tell, Rockefeller hired the first of these, uh, a man named Frederick T. Gates. Uh, and what Rockefeller gave over to Gates was a, this sort of uh, ability to uh, scientifically, objectively look at causes and then take Rockefeller's money and support those things, okay? Uh, we also had the birth of the, what might be called the leftist response or the negative response to these people. And this was, and I mean, if you think that, you know, the, the critique of philanthropy, uh, which we, we can read now in Winner Take All, uh, actually began almost uh, simultaneously with the beginning of the philanthropy by these rich people. Washington Gladden, for example, who's a very important figure in the late 19th century, wrote a seminal essay called Tainted Money. And this was the idea that, it, that these, these people were passing out money and it, it asked the question, what was the morality of taking money that had been earned immorally? Okay? Uh, and that, that notion has never left the world of philanthropy, all right? Uh, it never really disappeared. I think the suspicion of great wealth is also rooted in this period. And of course, if you don't have a suspicion of great wealth today, you're not paying attention, all right? Uh, but Carnegie asked a crucial question. If you accept that society and the economy are organized in the best way, and you don't have to do that, uh, then what is the proper form of, of what, what do you do uh, with this money? Uh, what is then, I'm quoting uh, 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 Carnegie, what is the proper form of administering wealth after the laws upon which civilization is founded have thrown it into the hands of the few. How do you deal with freed money? Okay, okay. well the objection you can have in there is that he got his money not by the laws of civilization automatically giving it to him, he got it because he was greedy and ruthless. Uh, that's the other way you can, you can think about that. All right, uh, you create ladders. And this is, of course, uh, you know, I, I, I really have no idea uh, how to convey this. I mean, one of the things that uh, uh, Carnegie did that I find really interesting 
was he wanted to create a better educational system. He wanted to draw better people into the teaching profession. So he creates a Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching. Uh, one of the things they did was to invent teacher pensions, which made it uh, much more uh, uh, attractive uh, to become a teacher uh, if you knew that you're, once you, you got out of the business, uh, you, you, know, you could uh, have, a, have a decent sort of retirement. Uh, he also created the Endowment for International Peace in 1910, but most notably, and personally from my point of view, created 28,000 Carnegie libraries. Uh, in Jackson, Michigan, I would go down to the Carnegie Library and wander around and got the love of books and, and went to various events and so on. Uh, and in Waterville, Maine, where I taught for 200 years, uh, 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 there also was a wonderful uh, Carnegie Library. I mean, it's just, it's just phenomenal when you think of uh, how many little towns, you know, uh, he, and, and, you know, let's be honest, he gave them the building and then left the staffing and, and, and filling of the shelves to the, to the local people, which probably was a good thing, in, in, you know, all said and done. And that was involved the town in the, the process of making a library a, center, a centerpiece. So, but the fact here is that it wasn't long before they began to see this process of giving out this money as a business, which is perfectly sensible, right? Uh, they were businessmen. And it was John D. Rockefeller who, who in, uh, invented the term, and I'm quoting him, the business of benevolence. And I'm quoting him here again, erect a foundation, a trust, and engage directors who will make it their life work to manage with our personal cooperation this business of benevolence properly and effectively. So this was the idea here that, that philanthropy, the philanthropic impulse coming from these surpluses uh, was beginning to produce a kind of world of its own, a world that helped these people give this, give this money away. Uh, The idea here is that uh, did these foundations reflect an honest concern for human welfare or a need to create public approval uh, in an age of progressive and to some degree leftist concern over the way the money had been made in the first place? And let's face it, that's just a structural element, it seems to me, of the philanthropic world that on the one side you have this absolutely glorious image of these wonderful people giving this money away, and on the other side you have this whole notion that the way in which the money was produced and the way in which the money is being given away is, is simply an element of, 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 of the business and, and, and protecting the reputation, and we have the invention of branding. Uh, you know. We, we, we like to think of these, <clears throat> these, the, these, the, these engines, these corporations that produce this wealth uh, as, as being benevolent and, and, and good for us in some ways. Big part of that is that they give this money away, that they philanthropically deal with this money. 
it, this making a business of philanthropy uh, is, uh, uh, ran into difficulties. And the difficulties uh, occurred when they began to try to incorporate the businesses of giving the money away. There, good, several people nodded. I did, uh, that, that, and of course, this was a giant step in the history of philanthropy. And that was you had this sort of business that drilled oil out of the ground or made steel or whatever. They produced a business giving the money away, all right? So when Rockefeller went to the federal government and said, I'd like to be incorporated, this business of giving this money away, the Rockefeller Foundation, I'd like to give this, I'd like, I'd like to be incorporated, the federal government said, no, we don't like you. We don't like this idea that somehow, it just seemed like a bad idea. And of course, a lot of that was the negative attitude of the sort of robber baron image of these people. And, and there were certainly progressives who saw this. Well, Rockefeller then dropped down a notch and got incorporated in the state of New York. But certainly one of the places where philanthropy um, uh, runs into uh, its leftist critics is when they try to incorporate and they try to become established the business of philanthropically dealing with this excess, this freed money. Um, is uh, uh, given the government's approval. It becomes a corporation, all right? Uh, I would like to at least note one exception here, and it's an important one, and it's really a complication, but it's, it's too important to skip over. And that was, what happens to people who wanted to philanthropically deal with a fundamental problem in American life that politicians didn't want you to deal with. And of course, that issue would be race, okay? And of course, there was a massive exception to this, and he's kind of a hero that doesn't get his due, and this is Julius Rosenwald. Uh, just out of curiosity, anybody know who Julius Rosenwald? Yes. Yeah. The school. Well, yeah. The yeah, but Sears. where do you make his money? Sears. Yeah, Sears. Sears, I, I always thought that, you know, I, I don't know. Yeah. Right. Anyway, behind the sort of lovely Protestant world of Sears and Roebuck is a Jewish man named Julius Rosenwald. All right. That's nice to know in the first place. And then second of all, as the gentleman is absolutely right, uh, by 1932, uh, Rosenwald had built 5,300 school buildings in the South. Uh, and uh, it has been estimated that uh, by 1930, 40% of black students uh, went to school in a building produced by Rosenwald. Uh, you can understand, I think, that when Rosenwald began to do this and to provide sort of any government affirmation of this to become incorporated to establish any sort of government um, uh, philanthropic partnership, uh, he encountered a great deal of resistance. Uh, the idea here was that you could advocate for libraries and certainly nobody was gonna, you know. The other thing, by the way, that Carnegie loved to do is he loved to give away church organs. Uh, uh, 
love church organs. Give away probably thousands of church organs. Uh, I mean, who could object to church organs? Uh, building schools for blacks in the South, uh, that was a little different deal. Uh, so you can see that, that some complexity develops here. All right, it gets to 1930 and I'm hopeless. Uh, because at this point, what happens is an intensely complicated uh, process that is really a, a history of administrative, it's a, it's a story of administrative history. Uh, there's a famous book in, in, among historian, history graduate students. It's called uh, The Administration of Government in the Adams and Jefferson Years. And it's like a 750 page book and it doesn't have anything interesting in it at all. <laughs> but it, it has these absolutely crucial things. I mean, how did this bureau get established and how did that, uh, you know, and the history of people you've never heard of. And I mean, administrative history is important, but mind bendingly dull. I mean, really. Uh, and I remember when you, when I, you would go take your comprehensives, there were six or eight of us. We all claimed to have read it, none of us had. Uh, all right. <laughs> what happens here, of course, is the administrative flowering and definition of, of, of this philanthropic world. They go to states seeking incorporation. They go to the federal government seeking uh, tax uh, abatement or tax-free status. That becomes a massive sort of debate uh, on and on and on. And of course, you begin to get a second layer of philanthropic endeavor, and that is these businesses that Rockefeller said you should establish to give the money away begin to associate and create other businesses. This is Garrison Keillor's Association of Federations. All right, and I mean, at some point, we're going to get the association of federations of associations. I mean, it's, 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 it's crazy. One of the things you have is you have the political fragmentation of the philanthropic movement as conservatives begin to understand that they can, they can create foundations and advocate for conservative causes. But I will say that there were three issues. One was tax treatment, which ended up in the general notion of tax-free status for legitimate nonprofits. Uh, government uh, cooperation, uh, to what degree were governments going to cooperate with, with nonprofits? Uh, and that ended up with a sort of government uh, nonprofit uh, partnership that exists today. And the third was advocacy. To what degree would tax-free nonprofits be able to advocate? And the answer to that, very simply, and I mean very simply, was that you could advocate for issues, but you couldn't advocate for candidates. All right? So I think if there's some sort of landmark here that ends this, and my wife is really worried that I'm never going to end this, I will end it right now. And that is with the Tax Act of, uh, the Tax Reform Act of, of 1969. That certainly if you're interested in the history of philanthropy that's relevant to you, you should go back and, and read about that, the debate and so on. Because most of what you're dealing with derives ultimately from that, from, from that act and resolves this. And then if you'd like to, you know, really 
jazz up your weekend. You can read uh, from the tax code, uh, uh, sections 503 through 505. Uh, bon chance, Maureen. All right. Uh, finally, you should, if you haven't, you should consult GuideStar, um, where there are two and a half million, I repeat, two and a half million nonprofit organizations. Yep. Uh, and I've, I've read that figure and I find it hard to believe, but this is from the smallest to the, to the biggest. Uh, and they, you can read their 990 forms. Uh, you can read about, uh, you know, how they've rationalized themselves and why they're given a tax-free status and what they're trying to do. But there, I've zoomed to the finish. I'm going to thank our uh, first, uh, thank my father first for having me and raising me. Good job. And also for the talk, that was very good. Um, thanks very much. I think uh, one of the things that is always nice for me, right? I um, long ago figured out I wouldn't be a professor myself. Um, but every now and then I do, the, I get to share uh, some family legacy, right? The I can't do what he just did, right? But I can convince him to come here uh, and do it for you. 